Voilà. Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. This is like almost 30. I've lost count at this point. Uh, you'll know what the number is because it'll say so on the iTunes store. So you'll know just as much as I do. This is a fascinating guest conversation this week because one of the things I'm always talking about so much with plants and with gardening is how locality is everything. Your soil, your climate, it gets really micro people. And then sometimes we forget uh, the earth is large and there's many places where people are growing plants and not just one or two, but on scale. My guest this week is Bob Matthews from Matthews Rose Nursery in New Zealand, Southern Hemisphere. So right off the bat, Bob, I've got to imagine you're in that sort of digging harvesting period because you're at the opposite end of the rose growing season that I'm at. You got that right. We're just progressing towards the last couple of days of lifting our standard roses, and um, we'll be lifting our bush roses from Monday. Your dad started Matthew's Rose Nursery. When and how was it roses? Was he a passionate rose person? What was the the start of Matthew's Rose Nursery? Uh, the start was the return from um, World War Two. Dad was a plantsman. He'd done his time as a nurseryman. And um, in 1947, the nursery started up and um, mum and dad got established in growing roses very quickly, but they grew everything else to make a quid on the way through. Um, there was a range of stuff over the years. I can remember specifically dad growing um, vegetable plants for supply to the people, the garden, home gardens. And um, we, you know, dad's... I ideology as a plantsman not a rose nurseryman just a plantsman was everything to do with plants and he bred um crab apples magnolias it, you know it was a sort of a hobby for him and but specifically the roses it started in 47 and um still carries on now was the rose by like his choice bob or did the market really dictate some of that too that, that roses at the time were a good economy um I think the roses were his choice. Um, probably they suited what he wanted to do. They gave him an economy. And um, But, you know, going back to when I was a kid, I can remember there was always roses. And I can remember going out to the packing shed at night um, as a kid, helping Dad sew up a bundle of roses, going to Invercargill. And Invercargill is probably the furthest we can see in a bu um, bunch of roses. And funnily enough, we still supply that garden centre. Okay, so we're going to get into this because this is one of the things that fascinates me. So the the country of New Zealand broken up into islands. How do you move plants around, Bob? I, I mean, is it is it just like what we would use here? FedEx, UPS, these you know FedEx is international, UPS isn't. Like, how does this work? Like, you're wholesale, but then you have independent garden centers, but you also sell retail as well through your online website. So walk me through, if you have a wholesale customer, places in order, how does it get out your door and arrive to them? Okay, well, you start with the wholesale. Um, the various ways of delivering a wholesale rose is they're uh, packaged into, um, it's a cardboard box system we use, or a, um, a made-up wooden crate, or uh, you know, specifically designed to suit the order size. There may be several of them for one order. 
and they'll go off on our local tracking system. Uh, it's called Toll, and um, they'll get delivered to the door of the garden centre, whether they're at the furthest point or the nearest point. And um, smaller parcels might go in the courier system, which you call FedEx or the equivalent. And um, that's the wholesale system. And we continue taking orders during the uh, winter season, and that all happens. Um, the online ones, of course, uh, they all go courier uh, through a similar packaging system, but they're obviously very much smaller. So did you the nursery, did it start wholesale with your dad, and then you eventually have added the online, you know, once that obviously became an opportunity? Um, no, I can always remember Dad doing what was called in those days mail order. Um, nowadays it's called um, online or internet. And um, the, um, the local system developed usually within the, what's called the, the rail system in New Zealand, which now has moved. We still have rail system, but it's now more um, road transport and courier, which the courier system didn't exist back then, but of course it's pretty much how it happens now. So your retail side of it, I'm always curious of this, because this is something that uh, I see a bit of a disconnect sometimes here in the States, and I wanted to ask you if it's similar there in New Zealand. What the wholesale garden center orders sometimes is different than the retail customer. True there, or is it pretty similar? You know, is this is the most popular rose on your online retail side the most popular rose on your wholesale side? Pretty much um, the similarity is there, um, but supplying the online or um, system is specific, and um, and those people like dealing direct with the nursery. Um, for a number of years, we moved away from that. We weren't actually doing it for a number of years. And recently, it's come back and is a very strong part of our business now. Do you ship those out bare root? Are they in containers? How How is it delivered in that way? Well, at this time of the year, or coming up, it's not yet, of course, um, they're shipped out bare root in a package system uh, through till about the middle of August when we need to change over to it being in a container. And it's a potted rose, basically, in a fancy pot, which is branded. We Everything we sell is branded. Uh, we find that very important. And uh, because our rose is specific to us, and it's also specific to the growing system we operate under. Um, so that's the online rose and the, um, the the roses for the garden centres. Well, they're shipped out bare root where they pot them uh, or put them in a container in their garden centre. We do do a limited amount of potting here for the garden centres, but um, we found that most of them like to do uh, receive them uh, bare root. How large is the space that you're growing on? Ah, uh, well, the sky's the limit with our place. We um, we have you know a large enough area to be able to rotate our nursery around uh, so that we uh, it's fresh ground all the time. And uh, the nursery is close on um, the 600 acres and um, quite different to what it was in Dad's time, of course, because we have a farm. It's a full farm with sheep and cattle, and we, we grow a lot of grain, so pretty integrated. So how many roses are you producing a year off of that? At the moment, we're down to about 15,000 standards and about 25,000, 30,000 bush roses. Um, that comes from a production of about 45,000 cuttings of bush and about 20,000 cuttings of standards. So there was a percentage loss. And are you doing, you're doing full propagation from budding all the way to harvest? 
all the way. We do everything. Now, we're going to get into the history thing here, but right off the bat, you did your dad hybridize roses as well? Or was that something that you he was doing and you really sort of took it to the next level? Well, he hybridized crab apples, magnolias. Um, he was doing all sorts of, as a hobby to him, he had apples. He had all sorts of things going. And um, my interest in breeding roses started when I was a kid. And I was just crossing two seedlings and having a bit of fun and uh, progress from there. I mean, I produced my first rose when I was 12. Um, probably looked terrible for what we have nowadays, but that's the way it works. Okay. So you said nowadays. This is something that whenever roses come up, Bob, um, I'm curious of hybridizers' opinions. Are we sometimes asking for too much in, in the modern approach to roses? You know, we, clearly we're, we're trying to continue to push for disease resistance and that varies from place to place across the world like where do you think we're at are, are we at a, are we at a good place are we too far with the disease resistance are we losing some roses that maybe need a little bit of care um when you trial your roses for your program are you doing a complete no spray where do you think we're at in the current hybridizer world of roses well now i've traveled and visited all the breeders, most of the breeders of the world, the, the good breeders, the big breeders, and we all have the same ideology, no spray. And um, some of us might be different to others in our ideology, but it's very, very strongly orientated that the customer wants a plant that they plant in the garden and don't touch it, and apart from the pruning and that sort of thing. So we're very much orientated towards that, and we do that with our program here, and I've been doing it for 20 years. And I know um, some of the other breeders are, you know, I'm just following on from them. Yeah. And it is really, really good. Do you ever have a moment where you have a rose that you're excited about and then in trial, you're just like, oh, I wish. Why'd you have to do that? Why'd you show a black spot? Why have you had, how, are you at a place where you have those moments where there's still like a rose you have really high hopes for and then during trials, it just lets you down for whatever reason? You've got lots of them. I can recall roses that out of my own breeding program that are in that area i can call roses that have come i've bought them from overseas in our import system and i've seen them overseas and i've seen them when they first fly out here and i thought wow have we got something here and then during the growing season it just disintegrates and oh it's just you know gone and that's how it happens now real quick i just did a weather average for your area in new zealand what is the climate like? We'll talk climate first, but give me a little bit of climate talk and then give me a little bit of soil talk too, because obviously those two things are so crucial for what you're doing. Uh, the climate in um, New Zealand is essentially a temperate climate, generally across the board. And Wanganui, where I live, and we have been growing these roses for 70 years now, um, is one of the more temperate climates that suits growing of plants, specifically roses. Um, there have been lots of rose growers in Wanganui area, lots of roses grown for the, for the New Zealand-wide system, and that actually still um, lives today. Um, we still produce probably the majority of roses um, for the New Zealand system. Wow, which is, which is pretty remarkable too, that for that long, talk to me about like the influence of the rest of the rose world you know david austin obviously with his work in the uk uh the sort of the 
the rebirth of the English garden rose? Did did New, New Zealand's taste for roses follow that same kind of interest? Did you follow that as a hybridizer? Or has it been maybe on its own unique interest level and timeline of what's been popular? I would say we follow the interest of the world in that area. New Zealand probably has a slightly, obviously a uniqueness of what it prefers. Um, but the, we do get closer and closer on some things and we also get further apart on other things. I mean, European roses tend to be pot roses or um, lighter flowering roses, and that could reflect their growing system where the weather puts them off a little bit. Um, the New Zealand rose with our temperate and you know open air growing system, we can run a slightly different rose and they do look differently. Um, Australia, for example, is a hotter climate, so their roses are different. And generally speaking, your American rose, some of your areas are a lot hotter, so you have slightly different roses. And how they perform, you know, in New Zealand is quite it's quite dramatic sometimes when you put them into trials. And what do you think? And you've heard it's a great rose over there, but it's no good here. And um, some of it is to do just with the flower. A lot of it is to do with health. All right. Let me bring one up because Michael Marriott from David Austin has brought this rose up. And it's always fascinating for me. We'll get real specific here. So Abraham Darby doesn't do very well in the UK, but does very well here in the States. How is that rose and, or, and have you had that rose in New Zealand and how has it done for you? Just to try to get a point of reference. In its early days, Abraham Darby was a very good rose in New Zealand um, and it could be repetitive propagation or not, but lately it's fallen off its perch. There are much better roses around there. And that's a shining example of what happens sometimes in rose, the rose culture. If you go to the old rose, peace. Peace is still grown by a few growers, but we found we had to stop growing it because, um, you know, people would ring up and say their peace died and we had to replace it. And we do really get fed up with doing that because peace in the nursery died. So it was no good. So repetitive propagation can be an issue. Do you, so when you say repetitive propagation, do you theorize that some of that is either the genetics of the plant get weaker over time, or is it just we there are better introductions now that have surpassed it as far as its disease resistance or just its characteristics? Uh, both of those. Um, it is commonly accepted in the plant industry that repetitive propagation, where you don't see that you're um, selecting budwood that is um, of a degenerative area in the gene population, um, hap is happening. And um, when a rose like peace being produced by the hundreds of thousands for many years, you're going to get an incident to sporting. And let's face it, most sports are no good. Mm. And the propagation, so you can't do much about it. Walk people through that for a second, because this is something I think on the production side of the nursery world people are familiar with but in the garden people aren't that selecting budwood or scion wood in, in varying categories is really an important part of the process and making sure that you're selecting good wood essentially strong healthy growth and over time if that weakens we don't get as good of a plant when it's budded so you, with a rose like peace and over the time you know obviously, since the 40s that the nursery's been there, you've seen that firsthand. Just give us a little bit of insight, maybe another example of how that weakens the plant over time. 
it's a selection of budwood from the people doing the budwood selection that we it's not, it's not so much weakening the plant they're weakening the selection process it's just happening and you can't actually see it it's very infinitesimal and one of my friends sam mcgreedy made um, a very strong point about this many many years ago when um, a variety is in decline it's usually because it's sported and the sport is not noticeable that's the issue they're not noticeable sports they're very small very fine uh, but it's enough to create a, a gene deflection hmm. that's where we see it happening do you also we're, 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 we're way into the horticulture geek talk here bob which i always like do you <laughs> do you think that budded roses are influenced by their understock as far as those traits and characteristics go um very much so, but not with the gene depreciation. Um, the understock does reflect the growth of the main rows, and it, the understock can be very, very specific to either an area, like some areas prefer a particular understock, and um, it can also create a lot more vigor in a plant. It can create a different stature in a plant. Um, understocks are probably as big an area of discussion as the breeding of roses. And that might baffle everybody that one. No, well, and I, it's one of the things that um, when I was running a large nursery in Oregon that we talked about with like fir trees with ABs, that there was a theory that ABs firma was a better understock to graft to for warmer, hotter climates. Everybody and, has an opinion, yeah. That's it. And it becomes this very, as, as growers, for those of you that are in the gardening universe, like there's these sort of behind the scenes conversations sometimes that occasionally can get you down these weird rabbit holes because some of this is very theorized and not actually trialed or proven. You'll find one grower who's like, oh, I grafted it to this and this was the greatest thing ever. And then someone else tries it and it's the worst thing ever. So have you moved to, are you primarily doing budded roses? Are you doing own root rose work as well there at Matthews? Right, well, over the years, as the odd nursery has tried what's called honorary roses. I've seen them in America, and I'm not sure about their popularity, but it looks like they're reasonably popular in America. We have trialled them here in our nursery, and um, the curious fact was that um, the um, feedback from the garden centre where the supplier was set up was that the people come in and, oh, that's an own root rose. I don't want that. Where's a buttered rose? Um, the New Zealand... Um, ideology is for a budded rose and there are many reasons for that mostly is the vigor of the plant mm. um if you go back in the genetics some roses perform quite well on cuttings and they're fine but generally speaking most roses don't and they do grow on cut as cuttings but they prefer that um, the vigorousness they get from the and you essentially have a 12-month growing season there correct well more or less i mean we're um, it's it's our winter at the moment. Autumn uh, more or less going into winter, and um, we're two or three months of the year where it's cooler. But um, from a rose point of view, part of our trialing is trying to get a repeat repeat flowering system, three or four repeats in a season. And I know they don't get that in other parts of the world, but we do. And there is a breeding gene that has been recently talked about, and um, we're very careful about where we breed and what we use for breeding there. Um, we don't breed from sports because the sport has got the recessive gene in it and we only breed from anything that's uh, proven to us that it's doing a triple or quadruple flowering 
So as a breeder, that's really interesting. So you're looking now specifically for something that may give you three or four blooms a year. So when you're doing your crosses, somewhere in that parentage, you're looking for a rose with that trait now. In every cross, there's always that trait. And, um, and it's really great when we can use um, double cross because um, it's, you know, multiplied. It doesn't work, I can tell you. It backfires on you, but that's the way, that's the rose breeding, of course. So walk me through this because this is something else that I was really curious about. So beyond your own introductions that you're doing, you also, uh, you have some David Austin roses that you offer in your catalog. How do you get roses into New Zealand? Is, is it more of a, a complicated process? Because I, I know in a lot of the Southern Hemisphere, um, they've been very concerned about bringing in past and everything else, biological uh, oversight. Is the process difficult? Is it relatively easy for you? How has that worked over the years? And I'm sure it's also changed over the years too. Well, there's new rules come into place this year, so they've become even more difficult. They have been getting more difficult over the years. I can remember um, as a kid, um, Dad importing roses from um, Star Roses of all places, and they used to be American, still are, I think. And um, you know, there was no problem at all. They were still under an MPI or MAF MAF um, um, direction and all the rest of it in those days. But nowadays we're into closed glass houses and um, very strict um, import restriction biosecurities. And um, getting roses into New Zealand is very difficult. Hmm. How how does that affect you? Do you put more effort in your hybridizing to you know continue to produce new varieties? Do you just grin and bear through that process? How have you decided to to tackle that from a business perspective? Probably all of that. Grin and bear is one of the things you've got to do it when you're dealing with MPI and MAF and um, setting up. Um, you know, very expensive greenhouses to um, find it several, two or three years later, and uh, that's not suitable now, you got to do a different one. Um, gets very frustrating. But I accept that they do have a rationale for it. Um, yeah, it's a little bit difficult to understand when you see the number of visitors that come into New Zealand from the same places, possibly carting the same diseases, but however. Yeah, so, when, so if you receive uh, a new plant that you want to bring in, is it as like mother plants, like stock plants that come in bare root? Is it as cuttings? And then are those quarantined for a period of time? All of that. In our case, we bring in what we call budwood material, which is more or less a cutting. And we um, either grow the cutting or propagate using the bud onto our um, in-house uh, understocks. Interesting. Everything, everything is kept in the class house, in a greenhouse under strict biosecurity, it's a special machine, uh, special shed, and so on and so forth. All right, Bob, let's talk about one of my favorite things to talk about, pest, diseases, and problems. Uh, if you had to circle on your, your like top five New Zealand rose growing problems, what would they be? Uh, well, in New Zealand, um, downy mildew is a big problem, and it was interesting to travel to America to um, – watch a disease problem at um, one of the nurseries I used to travel to and um, they were wondering what it was and they'd never experienced it before. And um, it was called downy mildew in the day and that's what it's still called. It is a problem in New Zealand. We've also got black spot rust and powdery mildew. 
those are the most of the diseases and varying levels of infection that cause trouble. And those are the ones that by breeding we can remove them. Um, you know, the black spot is almost removable by breeding. Uh, it's there, but it's not a problem. Downy mildew is can be removed by breeding, but it's very much a uh, changes its changes its um, clothes all the day, all the time. It's changing. Rust is very much a breeding program, and the powdery mildew is very much a breeding program. I've seen all this in my trial, in my trialing, and in all the trials I've visited. Um, as breeders, we're being very successful here. And you, because of the way the country's layout, do you feel that the the climate you in North America, one of the things that people always complain about from a breeding perspective is our climate is so drastically different from area to area. Do you ever have nightmares of thinking that maybe <laughs> of empathizing with people who say that, you know, we have uh, areas like in northern Minnesota where it's negative 40 and then we have areas like southern Texas where it's 120. Is the climate through New Zealand temperate and in that way where you're not having to maybe breed for those extremes? We, you know, we don't have those extremes. We uh, have similarities, but not to that extreme. And uh, I think I think the breeding program, you know, this New Zealand-wide system where we're right in the middle, I think it gives us a lot of benefit. I know roses that are bred outside of Whanganui perform very well, but, they, you know, they change. And I have heard of some roses... You know, they are, can be quite different in different areas, but not so strongly. Let's talk insect, right? Because there's got to be, I mean, insects are everywhere. I mean, come on, people. Absolutely. Biggest problem, insect or pest? Well, um, in New Zealand, um, mites and um, aphids and to a lesser degree caterpillars and what have you, they're all a problem. And this is something in my breeding program, and I've seen it in other places, I've been very strong on, because we can identify a plant that is um, tolerant or susceptible to different bugs and grub. Um, and we cut them out. We just drop them. Um, specifically, whitefly and um, mites. Um, some roses are attractive to them. Some varieties of roses are attractive to them. And um, one of my... Um, now well past Dr. Phil Gardner established way back in his theories that the flavor of the sap was a very strong reasoning why different insects are attracted to different plants, including roses. Walk me through this. Now this, you got my attention now, Bob. Tricky one, that one. Yeah. I no. mean, he was, he was a scientist. He was a scientist. He was fascinating. It was exploratory. It was not, um, scientifically proven or anything else. It was observational, and I believe he was right because I've seen it myself for many years now. And uh, we'll get a rose, one variety, all by itself, in a row of trial varieties, and it gets covered in mites or it gets covered in aphids. White, uh, ash whitefly is a big problem outside here. Uh, or it, it might see some um, um, aphids as well. Now, right next door, other varieties, they don't have any infection whatsoever. So I reckon he was right. So how do you go about that? So what's your selection process? Are you, is it to a place where you are, what what characteristics of a rose are you looking at beyond just the observational part of it to know 
that's a rose that the the white fly or the aphids don't like are are you at a place where you can identify a specific characteristic or a particular mother plant that they don't like well, i think that would have to be done a lot more theoretically than i can mine is strictly observational and i it's very difficult to define why um, they are attractive to the um, the bugs and grubs uh, in our case, it's observational. We see that they're, uh, they go to those plants. We just drop that variety. We don't worry about it. Sometimes the variety will stay in the trial bed for two or three years, and every year is the same. Every year they get covered in white fly, ash, ash white fly mites, or aphids, one or the other, and it doesn't travel next door. So, you know, we're right. We're pretty right with our theory. When I had uh, Dr. Wyndham on from the University of Tennessee in a previous episode, it feels like to me... <laughs> really that we're just we don't know as much maybe as we thought we did at one point bob about plants right like, like we often yeah, feel like maybe we're we're just that's it that we're just scratching the surface in your years of doing that do you really feel like as long as we've been propagating plants and we're, we're pretty knee deep in the horticulture game but maybe we're still like really young in our overall knowledge of what's actually going on uh very definitely and a lot of these theories, I mean, I've spoken with some younger people in the, I mean, at my age, I'm sort of getting the other end, but I've spoken with some younger people who have come up with these wonderful ideas and theories and want to try them. And I said, well, we did that 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And of course, uh, yeah, right. Oh, well, yeah, but that was 30 years ago. It doesn't mean anything now. And that's not right because when we're dealing with plants, it all carries forward very much so. Mm. And I would have to imagine in New Zealand, similar to here in the States, that a lot of the actual scientific research money hasn't been for things like roses or ornamentals. If, if there is research money, it's typically for edible agriculture and horticulture. Yeah, but there has been a lot. I know in the States there's been a lot of money or a lot of research spent in that area. And I've got some notes here left over from Keith Seary and his time at um, um, Jackson and Perkins and very, very valuable, interesting stuff that he sent us. And it was all research funded by JMPs, maybe, but you also got um, various universities have funded roses and plants. In New Zealand, um, we've got, um, you know, the research that's been done in New Zealand for um, at Massey University for various things in roses, and mostly to do with viruses and what have you, and it's been a fascinating subject to understand. Walk me through some of your, I was looking, and this is sort of a confusing thing, and I'm looking for your help here to give, because this is the first time we've talked about it on the podcast. When you have a rose named Cappuccino, it's one of your introductions, but out there in the market, there are other roses named Cappuccino, but you have a, a, a world rose designation on that. Could you walk people through that process? Like you find a rose, you think... It deserves introduction. How do you come up with that trade name? And then how do you come up with that registration name? Um, well, the process for uh, naming a rose in New Zealand is, you know, us personally. And um, there are various roses around the world that are named differently in different countries. And um, it might be a trade name in, in, in America, say, like Julia Child, but it's called Absolutely Fabulous in New Zealand. And 
you know, quite frankly, it's one of our better roses and produced by Wexis, a great rose. And um, it's called absolutely fabulous in um, England, in Europe. I think that's where we sort of picked the name up. As far as a cappuccino goes, um, where our research tells us there's no name, there's no rose named cappuccino in, in uh, Wanganui, in New Zealand, as far as I know. And that's what we called it. It's a beautiful rose, by the way. Is, is that a newer is that a newer introduction for you, or where in the timeline did you did you come up with that? Uh, it's one of my roses, and it's, and it's bred from a line of roses that I've had that color pattern in going back more twenty five years. I've just been improving on it quietly and steadily, and this is the latest improvement. Hmm. So when you're like now in two thousand nineteen, how many? seedlings of something will you trial going into your well for you will be your 2020 growing season to come up with your trial bed to look for new introductions well it, it, they come off the breeders and we plant around about 40,000 seeds um, we'll select about a thousand off that which go out for planting and and so that's in year one um, year two, year three, we'll select off that thousand, maybe a hundred, and uh, they go out. They're propagated by budding, and then over the next three to five years, uh, we end up with our one to five um, of the original thirty thousand, the full forty thousand, and that's pretty normal as far as I understand. How many roses do you think you've you've trialed over your time at Matthews now? Just ballpark, right? Just round number us. We've been, as importers, we've been bringing in hundreds and hundreds of varieties. Um, initially, we were bringing in, you know, I don't know, a thousand varieties. Um, and there would never be any more than one or two of them come on the market. And um, latterly, it, we've diminished that a little bit because our system has shifted. Um, and, you know, out of the... Um, Thousand or so varieties that we're in that are in trial at all time, and annually there was only three or four of them that are any good or suitable for marketing, which is really amazing. You know, that's one of the things that I, I you know, and you always wonder uh, when people see a, a plant on the market. You know, specifically, obviously talking about roses, that the time that goes into it, Bob, but, but people probably aren't aware that there is a lot that gets that rose to market. Do you Have you seen the appreciation for roses go up, go down over your time in the world of roses? Uh, the appreciation for new varieties has remained um, constant, if not improving. Um, and uh, the older style of roses, perhaps not so much, and... Um, I mean, the number of the production of roses in New Zealand has dropped dramatically, but the interest in new varieties has always been strong. Um, it's a numbers game, of course, and it possibly the, there's not as many being produced as there used to be in a worldwide trend here. Uh, I've got lots of friends in the rose, in, rose industry worldwide, and we're all suffering from or having that same sort of effect. But it's still very much a very strong, passionate area of uh, expertise and passionate area of uh, commercial activity. Why do you think the overall number has gone down? Ah, the internet, uh, online. There's so many things to do. The uh, commercial um, sport, you know, the professional sport. Um, 
and and our lifestyles have changed quite a bit. And I know in New Zealand you got um, um, you know you used to have a great big section playing a garden in it. Nowadays it's all infill and there's hardly room for anything. So mm. you know, which has shifted the emphasis to a little bit of pot, pot culture, a plant in a pot, and that sort of thing. So yeah, you just got to go with the play and you know find your spot. Do you th- in the states? I always have this talk that I go on, Bob, about how gardening slowly got replaced by the word landscaping and <laughs> the the world of gardening has been infringed upon by this world similar in new zealand that the people are, are doing like less of what you said you know creating like a garden space and moving maybe more towards that sort of landscaping idea i think that in um to a to a degree in the um people that have got um sufficient money to flow are doing that definitely but they still like to be involved in their garden and um, the other thing is the box store system of supplying plants um, there's just a bunch of plants and they don't care what they are they just dish them out and the people that are just getting started in gardening might go and try that sort of thing and it gets them tickled into in the gear and then they might go along their garden center where they'll get the right advice and they get all the good advice and um, that's where I think it sits when you think of of gardening in your time at Matthews, your entire life, essentially, do you see these trends? Do you think it's cyclical? Do you think, you know, we'll have a, you know, because obviously in the last uh, 20, 30 years, there's been a little bit move in like the vegetable category of people growing their own vegetables at home. Maybe that'll open up a gateway to flowers and ornamental gardening have you seen it sort of cyclical has it been sort of in one direction or the other oh, i think there's a, a slight cyclical nature in there um there is at the moment in new zealand quite a large interest in um, um the flower market and uh in growing and um, smaller areas growing demand for a local area in the flower market um whereas up till 20 years ago it was all it had moved into garden center production and um, it, yeah, it is very much cyclical. We will see um, that change again, I suppose. Um, um, the interest in roses, specifically in the gardens, um, has dropped a little bit. But it's actually the um, the information coming through from the wholesalers, uh, the ones we supply this year, is that it's on the on the roses are on the up. So that'll be great. You mentioned the flower world, which obviously social media has had a lot of impact on that. Do you do any cut flower production or are you as a hybridizer, as a nursery, is that something you're thinking more about in the last four or five years than maybe you were in the past? Um, Principally, we're growing roses as um, garden roses and the cut flower production is we haven't concentrated on it at all and we don't do cut flowers ourselves. But it's always of intense interest to us because we, we have certain varieties that do very well. And there are awesome varieties that do very well. And there's a lot of interest in that sort of thing. Um, when we're doing a selection process, you know, some of it is aimed towards that sort of thing, although we don't specifically do it. Do you, you think, because I have this theory, I'm, I'm giving you my own thesis, Bob, I'm, I'm leading you here on this one, that the one thing I see with cut flowers that's interesting is it's a bit of a gateway drug for people that a lot of people who maybe enjoy bringing in cut flowers necessarily weren't gardeners and it's a nice way to sometimes introduce people to it 
they see a rose that they haven't seen before. And it's different than the traditional high center point hybrid tea rose. And now they're like, oh, wait, I could grow this at home in, in a garden. Have you seen that in New Zealand at all? That maybe people coming from that world without experience, they have that thought either on the retail or hearing that maybe from some of your wholesale customers. I think so. I don't think it's huge, but I think it's it's fringing into that area, and maybe that's where uh, maybe that's a cycle thing that's happening. And um, of course, one of the issues the gar- the uh, rose done in the glasshouse doesn't necessarily grow very well outside. So what we're doing is replacing those roses with. Um, by selection process and finding stuff that will do that. Grows outside, produces a great flower. You can pick it and put it in the vase. It's fantastic. And that gets back to my three or four cycle flowering, which is part of our breeding program. We are really concentrating on that area. With your breeding program, do you uh, export plants out or or, or your own budwood if you have an introduction that you're really excited about? Has that been something that has been part of the business over the years at all? Well, we're not allowed to export roses, plants as such. Um, there are strict biosecurity problems there. There, there were a couple of countries where we were able to send them to, but competition is, of course, very fierce. Um, but we do send intellectual property in the form of um, cuttings and budwood to uh, various places overseas where they do their trials and it goes through the system. Some of them end up in America even. Um It'll be nice to think one day that they will work very well. We've got the odd rose that's doing okay overseas. Um, some roses that I think do well in New Zealand, I'm surprised that they don't pick them up overseas. But it's a big market and it's also a very competitive market. Hmm. Speak to that for a second because it's something we haven't covered so much that there have been um, historically in Europe just breeding programs. And as you mentioned, it is competitive over your your time doing this. Is that market more competitive, less competitive? Just walk us through that. Like what makes it even competitive? Like give people a little bit of an education on the sort of the world breeding stage of what exists out there. That's a difficult one. Well, when you talk competitive, basically – as a breeder, you set up a, a breeding program, whether it's you know, one glass or ten glass and I have been to those areas. Um, fascinating to watch and see the selection process. And then, of course, to make a return out of it, you've got to be able to get the growers to produce the variety. And in a, in a um, buoyant market, they will quite happily do that because obviously they have to pay a fee and it's an ongoing fee because you've got a, um, uh, an area of um, time with the breeders' rights there. Um, but in a declining market, of course, they drop all that sort of thing and they grow all these old roses, which, you know, quite frankly, they've seen their time of day and they should be long gone. We should be looking at the new varieties coming forward because the improvement is so huge. But we have it in New Zealand. I've seen it in Australia. I've seen it in America. I've seen it everywhere. Um Growers, being growers, of course, they'll prefer to produce a rose without having to pay any sort of fee on it, and um, those are out of date these days. Okay, you've mentioned this twice, and I want to hit on this. So there is a community of people out there. I'm going to call them very extreme collectors of roses, Bob. I'm going to be kind and say that. That are big proponents of uh, antique or heirloom rose introductions. Well, heritage. And- yes, and and I think there's a there's a place for that. But one of the things that 
sometimes their narrative, I think, doesn't do a good job of is pointing out what you've done a couple of times. A lot of the new introductions are just simply better. Would you agree with that on, on the whole? Definitely. The um, old-fashioned roses that the likes of Heritage Roses talks about and more or less what you're talking about, um, they're, they're great, they're fine, they're fantastic. I got involved in importing some from the Sagerhassen in Germany. Um, and they're great old varieties. They flower once and that's it. And they are fantastic roses for their time. And we still grow a reasonable selection of them, just looking at our catalogue here. And um, like Agnes and Cardinal de Richelieu and what have you, they do have a place. But um, a lot of them were um, single flowering. They, you know, they only flower once and they set up a massive display for a six-week period. That's quite normal. Um, we're trying to get into a modern rose, which flowers three or four times a year. Um, this is in New Zealand, of course. We're trying to not change the rose industry, just create the interest for the, the majority of the public rather than those few individuals that are mad keen on their heritage roses. Do you feel there was there's a lot of people out there still, and maybe one of the declines a little bit in the use of roses in gardening, when we see this here in the States, was the grandmother's experience with roses, right? The grandmother with, you know, oh, my <laughs> roses aren't doing well. And, and some of that's, again, what we're talking about, that these are our experiences and anecdotal of not planting out what we have today. So maybe it was, you know, in your case, you know, maybe a, a rose that was susceptible to downy mildew or black spot. Do you still find that that is a bit of maybe the hesitation for people to add roses to their gardens in New Zealand as well? Grandma's rose. Grandma grew it. It was in grandma's place. Yeah, I know all that. It's quite common. And we still grow a couple of those varieties uh, because we still get that inference. But generally speaking, the ones that are no good are long gone. Um, the ones that, are, that didn't grow very well, they have been dropped. Um, and the ones that are still being grown are still potentially useful um, varieties. And so that's fine. Um, and there's a grandma's rose. Iceberg would be one of them, I suppose. Maybe Mutabilis. Maybe Sally, Sally Holmes is exceptional. Anyway, those are sort of not an area of rose that we get involved in because um, we're trying to move forward into the new varieties, which we know are better. And we do try and push that quite a bit. Isn't it a little bit interesting in the plant world, Bob, that like you don't see that in a lot of other categories, right? <laughs> There's not that many places where people are like, you know, I want to keep this old thing that's not as good, you know, yeah. and, and especially in a more modern setting. Obviously, no one's holding on to their original iPhone saying, you know what? This one is better than the brand new one. No, most of the time people are like, OK. I'll get the new one because there is something better. Now, maybe we've gone to the extreme of that with some things in technology, but roses and plants are one of those that people are most sentimental about it sometimes. Very sentimental. Grandma's rose again. And um, we've just got to wear that and move along with it. And um, we tickle it along, um, but we are also trying to produce the, the best and the newest and the best and so on and so forth newest and best what do you think what are roses in the last three or four years varieties that you are excited about that you you really have seen come around that were your own roses or from other places that you have grown and been like wow this is a really great variety 
Well, some of the things we're excited about, I'm not allowed to tell you about. Um, See now, Bob, you're going to do this. You're going to do this to me. You're going to get excited. You're going to do this to me. And now we're we're going to have to illegally trade plants, Bob. I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to have to get some kind of teleportation device. I don't know what's going to happen. But what is out there that you that you you do have that you're excited about from the last few years? Um. I've got a rose that I've developed and put on the market called Ziggy. And um, it's a multi-coloured rose, which we didn't really, we weren't too sure about it in our trials. And believe it or not, we decided, no, we'll market it. It's too good. And it's a wow. It's doing well. And it's selling well. And it grows well. And it's a multi-coloured um, reds and creams and whites. And it's fantastic. Um, so that's one of them. I mean, Platinum, we won. We put one out called Chance of Peace. And now it's not bred from anything of peace. It just has a reminiscence of peace. But it's healthy. And it moves away from the uh, problems that we were associated with peace. Um, I don't know. There's so many new varieties that we've got coming forward all the time. And one of the things that we've um, moved ahead with in recent years is a selection of roses we call, well, we put them um, on my rose collection as a term that we're using for them. And they've all been bred from the rose my mum with other crosses. And they're all into this third and fourth flowering sort of scenario um, in most seasons. And we're very impressed with them as well. They have a multi, most of them are multi-petal sort of rose. You could, they're reminiscent of, of the English type rose. Um, most of them have got fragrance. We prefer them to have a fragrance. And, um, and of course, they have leaves on all year round. That's one of the big things about our breeding program. They don't have leaves till halfway through the season and then drop off. They have a full bunch of leaves, full bunch of growth, full bunch of everything without any spraying. Which is one of these things, too, that I would think in a, in a temperate climate like you have. Are, are there times where is that almost where you're starting in the breeding program that you're and this is with like I, I grow a ton of dahlias, right? We grow 9000 dahlias. I was out planting them today. Bob, one of the things that frustrates me about the Dahlia Dahlia world is that plant habit and health was sort of lost around the breeding, right? It just became about the flower. Flower, flower, flower. Is it a healthy plant? Is it, th- well, it doesn't matter. It's all about the flower. So as a breeder, is that sometimes where your eye is as focused on as it is the flower? Well, in nowadays with our modern breeding, um, there's the plant, the flower it becomes first, but it's got to have a plant. So, you know, there's no good having a great flower and it doesn't matter about the plant. Um, if you go back 30, 40 years, um, provided it had a good flower, it didn't matter about the plant because they could sell the flower. That's fine. But that doesn't exist anymore. It's got to have the plant. It's got to have everything. And have you worked closely with other breeders in other parts of the world or at least kept, you've mentioned a couple of times that you, you've had communication. Are there any... Uh, hybridizers specifically across the world that you've worked with? Uh, over the years, we've worked with um, a lot of the breeders. We've bought their stuff in New Zealand, trialed them, and they've taken my stuff and trialed them, and we have comments going back and forwards. And um, generally speaking, um, uh, sometimes it's a bit um, disappointing because, you know, nothing performs like you like it to, and it's just as disappointing with them. Um, I've Work with Sam McGreedy locally because he's a New Zealand person, of course, now, or become a New Zealand person way back in 1972. And um, 
I've worked closely with Sam for many years, and of course, we don't have that contact anymore because sadly he's getting older. But I still believe that he appreciates a good rose, and uh, we've had a lot to do with. Um, he had a lot to do with doing selections on our place and helping us get through that area. So, yes, uh, I've got um, other breeders in Europe and what have you. We've done that sort of thing. Is there any concern on your part as far as, is there anything you've seen problematic, pests, disease, anything that sort of popped up on your radar over the time that you've been doing this that you was new, a new challenge that you think has shown its head, like since when your dad uh, was doing the business to now you running it? Not really. The only challenge I see coming forward, and it, it's in with the breeding again, um, they get a, we've got some really fantastic looking material coming forward in flower, but I don't think they've tripped the um, health pattern yet. Um, they're working on it. I'm sure they're working on it. And maybe they've made that progress because it is a few years since I've been able to visit and see what's going on. But um, some of them have been here and we've covered this aspect very strongly. Do you have thrips in New Zealand, Bob? Um, yeah, we do. I'm not sure whether there's similar thrips to yours. Um, um, thrips is a problem or can be a minor problem in New Zealand. Um, it's one of the selection processes we run on. Um, a variety sort of picks up thrips. We don't, don't bother with that one. It's gone. That, this still fascinates me, Bob. This we're going to have to continue. You and I are going to have to start trading notes on this because I'm curious of this. <laughs> so the, the, the scientist you mentioned, was he a professor at a university there in New Zealand or what was his background? He was a rose grower, a commercial rose grower, commercial plantsman, and he developed in, as a the scientific side of his life developed in his mid-years around about 35, 40. And he um, went to the local university and did a doctorate in um, um well, plants and roses and rose viruses. It was fascinating. He was become a very close friend. Uh, he spread his knowledge to the whole industry, and it was fantastic. One last thing, because you mentioned that. Are you at all concerned about social media becoming, uh, at times, a false source of information about roses, considering the fact of what you just said? I think so many of us in the horticulture side of it try to beat the drums for good information because we know sometimes the danger of bad information. Well, you know, I see the bad information periodically and sometimes you try and address it. Sometimes you can't do much about it. Um, it's so easy on social media system, this, the social media system for people to spread an idea and um, where on earth did that come from? But they do it and it's picked up on. And you can't really do much about it. All you can do is keep telling the good story. Let me tell you the most fascinating one I had today. This just happened today, Bob. I was asked by someone, if you plant white peonies next to pink peonies, will the white <laughs> peony become more blush colored? Oh, okay. I thought that was a fascinating one. I was like, so you mean you think the genetics are somehow going to transfer? Like through roots. I don't know how you thought this was going to happen scientifically. All right, let's close on wrap up on this one, Bob. So give me in your time. Normally, I don't do this, but you're a Southern Hemisphere person. So I'm making an exception on this week's stories. Give me your five all time favorite roses specifically for New Zealand. 
Oh boy, that's a hard call. And um, I mean, um, what, what makes the, what makes a rose one of your favorites specifically? Like for you personally, like what are it, your things that you love about a rose? To start off with, it performs. It produces flowers. It grows all season reasonably comfortably, and um, it'd be good to have fragrance. But I'm, I don't put that in there because essentially speaking, as a garden rose, you want it looking leafy. You want it looking growth great and you want it in flower and so um one of the top roses for doing that of course in new zealand would be absolutely fabulous it's a fantastic rose and uh, that was bred by tom caruth of wexus if you know him and then and it's called julia's child in the usa i'm not sure how well it, how well it grows in the usa but um in new zealand it's fantastic second to that i'd have to put my mum which is my own rose and i'm not beating my own drum here. It's a fantastic rose. And it was selected by my mother many years ago. She, of course, always had my best seedlings in her garden. And um, that was the reason it was called my mum. And it started there. And, um, you know, further down the track, Iceberg would probably have to be um, on the list. It's a really, really good rose. Um, some of the Austins, like Graham Thomas, has always been a very good rose in New Zealand. And um, some smaller ones of Wild Eve, Windermere, maybe. Um, in the old fashions, you've got Mutabilis and Sally Holmes. They're fantastic. Um, there's a bit more than your five. And um, It's always hard probably, to pick five of anything, Bob, of anything uh, you like, right? It's a tough question. On top of the list uh, in that area, well, not on top of the list. Somewhere in the middle of all that would be Lasting Love. Come from Marcella Dame in France. It's fantastic. Um, that's been a very good rose in New Zealand. I understand uh, it's a good rose in America in some areas. I'm not sure. Um, how far do we go? I've got yeah. a lot of rice that are not released anywhere else in the world, um, and they're only released in New Zealand, so they would be unfamiliar to your public. Um, one of them I know called Mary's Love, and it was named after a, a man's wife. He chose it uh, deliberately to do that, and that comes from Dixons of Ireland. Um so, you know, there's many things that happen. Yeah, it's really fascinating how, for, and this is one of the things I've heard Tom Carruth mention about Julia Childs, and then we're going to wrap up on this one, how that's a rose that has translated from climate to climate and done well pretty much everywhere it's been in the world. Is that, mm-hmm. is that similar? Like, can you try to paint us a picture? Because that is difficult. Right, it is very difficult for a rose to perform just as well in the states as it does in the UK as it does in New Zealand. I've seen it in Australia, America, uh, in California, anyway, and uh, seen it in England, seen it in Europe, and of course, New Zealand. It's fantastic every year. No two ways about it. One of those unique roses that transcends the different climates and the different um, areas of the world because not many roses do that. Some do um, to varying degrees, but absolutely fabulous or Julia Childs just all by itself, fantastic. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails 
Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here all I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of Everybody's putting down this brand new hammer, but they're just whispers way up here. They got no rhyme. For the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears Some folks say I probably shouldn't live this way But the last time I checked This was my life for you.